Inwardly, he was deeply conflicted. Why aren't I desiring God, he asked desperately, as if I knew the reason why, hoping I had some answer to give him a quick fix, a simple solution, an easy answer, a magic bullet. But as we spoke together over Zoom on Monday, he was being honest and vulnerable with me. This was a legitimate struggle for him, an issue that he'd been wrestling with for a while, one that many of us know only too well. Finally, he'd come to the end of himself. I want to desire God, he said, but my practices say that I'm not. Even though I love God, I'm not spending time with him. When I asked him why, he said, because I look for easy comforts instead. I listen to music or a podcast. I look for intimacy in other places. I waste my time doing stuff of little value. I'm kicking against the goads, he said. I'm like Roman 7, now laughing, not because it was funny, but because he was frustrated with himself. I do what I don't want to do. What I want to do, I don't do it. I want to start my day with God, but I end up staying up too late at night. I look for easy stimulation or use numbing in order to distract me. I say yes to too many things, he said. I need to recover some peace in my life, reflecting out loud. Maybe I need to go for a walk. Maybe I need to detach from my distractions. I think I'm a slave to technology. What is it that's captured your heart? I asked him. I asked him. There was silence. And then he said, everything but the Lord. Pleasure and the things of this world. I've got a motivation problem, Mike. It's hard to get the engine started. Hard to be motivated to do hard things. I just want to feel good and I want to feel good for free. Do you know he struggles? Do you wrestle with the same thing, deeply conflicted on the inside because faith hasn't really changed your life all that much? Still wanting to feel good, even better if you could do it for free? Looking for stimulation or distraction, numbing in order to escape this strange warfare within us, a theology that doesn't live out at street level? Do you feel like you're disintegrating because faith and actions aren't integrated? like your faith and behaviour are separated and you can't seem to bring them together. James wants us to live wholeheartedly. A life where faith is a life that's lived out. Where our faith isn't dead and our religion isn't worthless. Where being Christ followers means taking one obedient step after the next, belief and behaviour in lockstep with one another. A faith that perseveres under trial, a faith that listens before it speaks, a faith that doesn't show favouritism, a faith that demonstrates deeds, a faith that controls what it says. If you've been reading through James or you've been following our teaching series on it, hopefully by now you've noticed this tension, that you're aware of the conflict, that you've got a glimpse of the issues and a picture of the people that James is now writing to. The conflict that exists between belief and behaviour, between words and works. The conflict that listens before it speaks and needs to be slow to become angry is a conflict that's shown partiality and taken sides and it requires watching what we say. The conflict within us has now boiled over into the congregation. Friends, there's a conflict within the church. Look there with me, won't you? Chapter 4. Verse 1, 
really important you see what James is saying for yourself this morning, friends. You got your Bible there? Chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. I want you to see this for yourself, the conflict that exists within us, the internal struggle of our own desires, wanting to feel good and wanting to feel good for free, spills over into our relationships together. Internal conflict quickly moves to becoming external. James asked, what causes quarrels and fights among you? What causes fights and quarrels is, that it is what exists within us. It's the war that lives within us. Our own passions and desires bring us into further conflict with one another. See what it's saying? We desire, but we don't have. We covet, but we can't keep. And so we become competitors, says James, arm wrestling for our preferences, squabbling about direction. And isn't that what most church spats are about? Isn't that why people leave churches? When the church is reduced to a mess, this is the mess it gets reduced to. Oh, they'll say all sorts of reasons for leaving, usually to save face or to shame other people. But it's always over what we want or over the direction we want things to go in. Which puts church leadership on a hiding to nothing, really. Sometimes church leaders can be the worst offenders. Conflict is expressed as open hostility, or it's displayed as passive resistance and withdrawal and separation. Either way, says James, the war between us originates from the war within us. The battle that's raging inside of us can cause skirmishes to break out amongst us. The relational distance that we feel, the emotional tension that we measure, the silence and the cutoff that we endure, the hostility and humiliation we partake in sometimes boils over, but it will always boil down to this. The war that exists between us is caused by the war that exists within us. Isn't that what James is saying? We have conflict with one another because we are deeply conflicted people ourselves. In the last 12 months, 80% of Australian evangelical pastors have reported conflict within their church. 80%. Statistically, church conflict is the highest cause of pastoral ministry burnout and cause for resignation. Some Aussie pastors have even reported incidents of sexual harassment, threats of violence, physical violence, bullying, unpleasant teasing, conflicts and quarrels, gossip and slander. In 20 years of pastoral ministry, I can honestly stand before you and say I've never been physically assaulted. But the highest level of offensive behaviour reported at almost 80% are conflicts and quarrels in churches. It's like James is addressing our lived-out experience, isn't he? What causes quarrels and fights among you? Now, we might murder one another, although perhaps the thought might have crossed your mind, but Jesus' brother, James's brother Jesus, said this about murder, chapter 5, verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother 
will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Many new Christians are shocked by the level of conflict that exists as part and parcel of our church life. And well, they should be. Christians should be different. But James insists that we can be different by taking steps, necessary steps to present, prevent conflict between us. James outlines what those steps are, but he still hasn't finished diagnosing the problem here yet. You see, the conflict that exists between us isn't limited to us and our horizontal relationships with each other. The struggle within goes vertical as well. Look there, verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Conflict within us, friends, results in conflict with others and conflict within us results in conflict with God. Sin is a relational tragedy. It creates separation and causes relational rupture. We think we know better than God. We seek our own will, not his. What James is saying here is the very opposite of the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? See that with me, Matthew 6, verse 9. Pray like this, says Jesus, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But we ask for what we want. That is if we ask God for anything at all. We don't pray the way Jesus taught us. We don't live for him. We're not listening to him. James calls that adultery. It's pretty shocking, isn't it? Truth is, we're more passionate about ourselves than we are for God. We ask heaven to do our will on earth. More passionate about protecting our own kingdom and accumulating our own resources than the establishment of his reign and his rule on earth as it is in heaven. Our kingdom come. Our will be done. James says it's cheating on God. Cheating God out of what's rightfully his. We're being unfaithful. Friends with the world or friends with God, whose side are you on? Because it can't be both. Can't have it both ways. Can't stay sitting on the fence. James even uses the word enmity there in verse 4 to remind us of sin's consequences. When we choose to pursue our own will instead of surrendering in obedience to God, well, see it with me, Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. James takes us all the way back to Eden Because sin is a battle of the will. Choosing our own desire and passions is what caused all of this problem in the first place. To befriend the world is to side with the deceiver. It's to make ourselves enemies of God. When we pursue our own will over God's word, God takes it personally. In fact, he sees it as an act of hostility towards him. But if all of this just seems hopeless and helpless, if it all just now feels too far gone and beyond all repair, 
if you're feeling the weight of your own hypocrisy, if you think your faith is disintegrating and your religion is worthless and you might as well give up, James reminds us not to do that. Look there, chapter 4, verse 6. But he gives more grace. Even when there was enmity in Eden, God gives more grace. The serpent crushed by the woman's offspring, Jesus defeats sin and death in his death for us. The serpent, the deceiver, crushed by the weight of the cross, dead, now made alive by his resurrection. You see, when we sin, when we choose our own passions, when we pursue our own desires. See it again. He gives more grace. When we assert our own will over others, rather than surrendering ourselves to God's will, go ahead and write this down now, won't you? Maybe commit this verse to memory. He gives more grace. God gives more grace. Undeserved, unmerited, unlimited favour, full, free and forever forgiveness, not because of our faithfulness but because of his fidelity to his own promises sin makes us three time tragedies we have conflict within us, conflict with each other conflict with God but James says he gives more grace grace paves the road back home look there verse 7 Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. James now provides the instructions for us. Here's the map to get from wherever you are right now to the place where it is that you need to be. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submission means surrender. It's the same idea as verse 6, humbling ourselves rather than being proud. Seeking God's will for us rather than simply doing whatever makes us feel good. Surrender means handing over the control of our life to God. Submission means living in obedience to his word. Aligning our lives with God's plans and purposes rather than chasing the world's acceptance and approval for us. Resisting the devil doesn't involve dark magic friends or doing strange things to goats. Every time we blindly follow our own desires, we make a mess of things. It doesn't mean blaming the devil for our mistakes. The devil made me do it. Resisting the devil acknowledges that we actually have an enemy. And our enemy, says Peter, prowls around like a roaring lion waiting for someone to devour. Resistance means not giving in to him. Not being taken in by his lies, not indulging our own pride, not looking to satisfy our own flesh, not taking the bait when we resist the devil, just like Jesus did for 40 days in the desert. James says the devil flees from us. Do you hear that? When we resist the devil, he flees from us so that we can draw near to God. When we draw near to God in repentance, look there, God draws near to us. 
God is always moving towards us. It is never awkward or difficult for God to forgive. No matter how far we've strayed, no matter what it is we've done, no matter where it is we now find ourselves to be in, God's not reluctant to embrace us again. When we repent, God moves towards us. God welcomes home the prodigal and then celebrates his return. Repentance means turning around. That's what repentance means. Look there, verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Repentance isn't simply a thought or a theology or an idea. It is an action that requires our hearts and our hands. We simply can't repent of our sins and then immediately return and start doing them all again. Without a change in our behaviour, that's not repentance, friends. It's worthless religion. In turning away from our sinful actions, in turning away from our sinful attitudes, life and lip become integrated into wholehearted worship. Cleanse and purify there, they are words of spiritual washing, aren't they? The language here is one of the temple. It's not that there's no joy in following Jesus. James has already said, consider it pure joy in the face of various trials. But turning our laughter into mourning is the emotional expression of our repentance. It is the physical response to the realisation that our sin has offended the one who loves us the most. James instructs us that the road home to God is one that should be covered with our tears. Not boasting about the things that we've done, but sorry that we did them in the first place. Grieve, mourn and wail, says James, not because there's no joy in Jesus, but for the joy that we missed out on while we were indulging in our sin. Grieve and Mourn and wail for the joy that waited for you to come back. I am not going to guilt you this morning by asking when was the last time you wept over your sin. Instead, I want you to consider the joy that you walked out on when you looked for joy in all the wrong places. Surely that would move you to tears, wouldn't it? Searching for joy by turning our backs on its very source. Here's the great paradox of our faith, friends. We weep and we mourn our sin while singing for joy because of his grace. Be wretched, mourn, wail and weep. But he gives more grace. The lower we become in our humility, the higher he elevates us in his glory. But our repentance isn't simply vertical. Our repentance also needs to be horizontal. Faith gets lived out in community with others, verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. There is only one lawgiver and judge 
he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbour? It is easy for us to speak evil against others, isn't it? Easy to slander other people and to defame them. Problem is, says James, doing that speaks evil against the law of God. It places us in a position of judgment over God. But who are we to condemn other people? Real repentance, says James, brings humility, not more pride or judgment. James has already talked, hasn't he, about taming the tongue, but we're quick to run off at the mouth. We slander our neighbours, we don't love them. God gives more grace, but not us. We make judgments about others among us. We tell others who will listen just what it is we think of that person. Sometimes the schoolyard and the workplace aren't really any different at all to the church, are they? But it should be. Christ followers need to be different. Running others down is so reflexive for us that we don't even realise that we're doing it. But that is not love, that's judgement. It's not our place to judge. The law summarised as love your neighbour as yourself. So if you're someone who is in need of more grace that he gives, well, who are you to judge your neighbour? Friends, as a church, it's time that we started to bridge the gap between what we say and how we live. Authentic faith is a life that is lived out. Faith without works is dead. Does your life live out the life of Christ? Does your life live out the life of Christ. We have an enemy, but it isn't with one another. If you want to have a fight, James says, fight the devil instead. Our selfish desires and passions war within us. That's what causes all the fights among us. We're the problem, but Christ's followers can be different. Don't be deceived or tricked into thinking otherwise. That only leads to judging others. Instead of surrendering ourselves to the evil one, let's surrender ourselves to God's will. I want you to take a moment and think about these questions. What is the battle that is now raging within you? Can you identify it? What's the inner struggle that you are now struggling with? Do you know what it is? What passions and desires of yours are now conflicting with you living for God? How are your conflicting passions impacting the way that you relate to the rest of us? 
What's the battle now raging within you? What inner struggle are you now struggling with? What passions and desires of yours are now in conflict with you, living for God? How are your conflicting passions now impacting the way you relate to the rest of us? God wants to draw near. And he gives more grace. Turn around. There's a road back and joy waits for you. Will you pray with me? Father, sometimes our pride and arrogance is so entrenched that we cannot even see ourselves what's going on within us. Sometimes we're so caught up in being right that we don't realise the harm that we cause other people. Sometimes we so desperately want what we think is best that we treat others poorly and selfishly. Sometimes we just can't be bothered. but you give more grace. You draw near to us. You call us to turn around and to repent and to restore our relationship with you and with each other. Lord, we want to thank you that we are the new creation that you are making, a new community of people changed by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And so we ask that our relationships with one another would be different from the world. We ask that true love might be demonstrated amongst us. We ask that we might seek the welfare and the interests of others rather than seeking our own. We ask that we might look not to our own preferences but to the well-being of other people. So this morning we ask that you'd forgive us for the times we've insisted or stood on our own sanctimoniousness and demanded we get our own way. Forgive us for the times when we've stormed off or cut off others because we didn't get what we want. Rather than judging our neighbour, Lord Jesus, would you help us to love our neighbours? Would you help us to be the people you want us to be? To be the church that you want us to be? We ask for your forgiveness for the times this morning when we've not been that. We are saddened because of the joy that we've missed. We're sorry for the grace that we ignored. And so we come before you in repentance in order to receive your grace and your joy. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.